Hello, everyone. This is Carl from the Dovaco Podcast Room uh, for another episode of Come Off the Ledge. And today I have a very uh, special guest that I've uh, just recently met over the last six months to a year. Uh, she's a, a new addition to our Dovaco family and is part of the Tuber team. Her name is uh, Karen Bigger. And she has a very interesting uh, background uh, that can help us um, understand more about mental illness. Uh, how are you, Karen? Hi, Carl, and thank you very much. It's my honor to be in the guest seat today. I'm doing wonderful. Um, as I had mentioned earlier, you have brought back a passion of mine that I kind of put off to the side as other work took my time. So it is my absolute pleasure to be able to sit here and talk with you about my experience in mental health nursing. Great. But I understand uh, in your past, you weren't always involved in mental health and you had a different career uh, choice in mind. Yes, exactly. And I... um I'm smiling because this is one of the stories that I tell my nursing students when I used to have them on the clinical sites in mental health nursing. Um, so I had a 25-year career in nursing. And when I started out, I was completely surgery task-oriented. And even when I say that, mental health nursing is in every part of our nursing culture. But at the time, as a new grad, back in 1997, I didn't think so. So I was more about get the patients in, get them the surgeries they need, make sure that they have the dressing supplies or whatever follow-up care, and out the door they went. And it wasn't until I got to work at the IWK Center in Halifax in the early 2000s. I was working with families. Um, I was working in the neonatal intensive care unit. And what really hit my heart hard enough so that, okay, it was time to do my own self-discovery, was I saw these beautiful young couples coming in with the expectation of going through a natural life experience and taking home a healthy term baby. And if you ended up in the NICU, in the neonatal intensive care unit, that was not the case. There was complications. And all of a sudden, I was nursing not just the baby, but the family who have gone, went through a very distressing event. And I knew then I needed to be able to give more emotional support at that time. So that led me into mental health nursing. And I spent 10 plus years as a mental health nurse and also teaching it in the academic curriculum and nursing programs. Was the mental health, um, nursing in Halifax or, or Prince Edward Island where you're from or Yeah, great question. So, um it just happened that I moved home in 2004 um and I had my daughter in 2005 and when I went back to work for maternity leave, I went back to mental health nursing. So, it um it was in my home province at Prince County Hospital where it's all started on the inpatient mental health unit. Now, did this require more education on your behalf to become a mental health nurse, or was it something that you're already qualified for? Um, well, um, I had my degree in nursing, so I didn't have to go back to school for any formal training. But what I did was I was back in the books uh, to review, of course, the mental health theory and um, to be familiar with the different treatments and modalities specific to mental health nursing. That, it's a good question, Carl, because that in itself, once I got back into the books, I realized how much I loved learning and staying current, and that led me to starting my master's. 
So I completed my master's in nursing with a teaching focus, and that's how I got to teach mental health nursing in the academic curriculums. Now, is there anything specific that you'd like to bring up um, in regards to mental health and seeking help? And I know we talked about this um, outside this podcast room in regards to, you know, uh, outpatients is not always necessarily uh, the way to go for help. And you talked about different experiences in your own experience, like how people could get help in other avenues. Exactly. Well, and we're at a time now where our demand for mental health services is outweighing our resources. And that's everywhere. Um, I know when it's been a couple of years since I've been uh, practicing as a mental health nurse, um, but the wait times were lengthy, like up to a year to get some follow up some treatments that were needed and a lot can happen in those months that's when you have that window of opportunity where you're open to hearing support so a lot of times I would find people would show up and emerge and they would have back pain or headaches or a flare up of their irritable bowel their stress came out somewhere in the physical symptom. And really, it was due to a stress that they were going through or a trauma that they haven't healed from, or maybe a flare up of um, a chemical imbalance that was happening. And what I was finding was that we weren't able to meet every one of their needs specifically just in the emergency department. And so A lot of times it's looking at the community resources. There is so much support out there, but it's just getting it into the right hands. When I talk about modalities, there's um, doctor of natural therapy, there's naturopathic doctors, there's nutritionists, massage therapists, acupuncturists, um, counselors, physiotherapists, someone that you can talk to about stressors that are happening in your life. What happens with stress? Stress is wear and tear on our body. Nobody is exempt from stress. We are biologically hardwired to go through stress. What happens with um, physical and emotional pain is when the stress outweighs our available resources that we have to cope with it. And that's when you can get into that chemical imbalance and having too much cortisol in our systems. Um, I had done a TEDx talk last year, and one of the key components that I emphasized was high levels of cortisol and stress-related illnesses are at an all-time high, and they are now the number one public health concern. So it comes with an understanding of how our bodies are hardwired and what stressors we are dealing with every day and how to keep ourselves in check so that we can pick up on our triggers. I could talk about it for a long time, Carol, and <laughs> most definitely. So in my, in my experience with, you know, getting help, yeah. Uh, um, yeah. I did not know about, you know, these different avenues necessarily national, like, you know what I mean? Right. My thought of mental illness was you have to go to your family doctor or you have to go to emerge. I didn't realize there was such a broad yes. spectrum of people you could reach out to. I don't know, you know, this happened to me in my early twenties, which was 20 years ago. And there was, you know, a different, um, maybe look or, you know, people went to different, mm-hmm. uh, ways Mm -hmm. to get better uh, compared to now. And did you find there was a transition over the years? Yes. And the transition, 
um, has been impacted by how much more open everybody is about talking about mental health and emotional health. Definitely when I graduated nursing, and this is back in 1997, everything went through a family doctor. And you didn't talk about mental illness with anybody. It wasn't something you talked about. There was such an uncomfortable feeling around it. And there's still a bit of a stigma that exists, but we're getting much better at realizing that our mental health and our emotional health is part of our self-care measures. Um, So definitely the first line of defense or the first line of choice was always to go to your family doctor. We're now living in a time where not everybody has a family doctor, or if they do, it may take too long to get in there. And in the meantime, there's so many other avenues of support that a person has the right to reach out to. And it all starts with one conversation. One thing that I've learned is people may not know the right thing to say in the moment, but they genuinely care for you. And a lot of times it's being present and just sitting with that person that'll make the difference on what the next step will be. And in some cases, unfortunately, they're more severe than others, like my, yeah. I myself um, unfortunately, didn't turn anyone, internalized it because I was too afraid to speak up back in the 90s, which happened to me. Yes. And I was too afraid to let people know. And I let it internalize so long that I got to a point where it was almost of no return. Mm-hmm. Um, and the hospital was the only option. At, oh, most at, at definitely. Yes. And there are times where when in doubt, you go to the emergency department and that's where the start of the collaborative team can happen. Um, there's definitely different varying levels of intensity when it comes to how you're functioning and what level of care you need. And that's the thing is... It's the severity and the duration of the stressor, right? So, and the longer you leave it, the more of a chemical imbalance that happens in your body. And what was really eye-opening for me is that the level of cortisol in our systems affects how we think. So it becomes very difficult when you're learning new information to process it and store it or to relay it in a manner that is consistent with reality. So it can cause some distorted thinking. And that is a crisis. When your body is stressed to that point that your thinking becomes distorted, you most definitely need to seek out medical attention. So what was your role at as being a nurse at the hospital, like when people came in, what was... Okay, so um, as a staff nurse on an acute care setting, I did everything from admit individuals to the mental health unit. I did um, case conferencing. I did group facilitation, teaching, um, one-on-one crisis conversations, motivational interviewing. Um, I worked with a team of psychiatrists, psychologists, social worker, occupational therapist. And um, I did a lot of health teaching. And it was to prepare the individual so that when they were discharged from the hospital, that they had the best chance of seeking out the supports they needed so that they could develop their own coping skills. 
So it was knowing that we were always a support to them, but hoping to enhance their independence. Now, were families heavily involved in this um, process if they had family or if they had someone with them? Yeah, it depended. Now, our philosophy where I worked was if the relationships were healthy within the family, because a lot of times lack of understanding or um, earlier stressors or trauma that haven't been healed within family member relationships can actually cause more of a detriment to the person's healing than not. So if the relationships were healthy, we set up, we started with them with a support team. If there was some work to do within the family relationships, that's where we got involved with counseling. And we linked in our family counselor and just tried to to be as proactive as possible with the family to say, hey, you know, you're not alone. Nobody has to go through this alone. Um, family dynamics are real. Tra- everybody handles stress and trauma differently. And a lot of times I found there was unresolved grief within families, not meeting not meeting the societal expectation or measuring yourself against the ideal. And just breaking those old stigmas down was was uh, the initial part of our treatment. And have you had uh, many encounters with youth, like young people who are going through? Yes. I actually, I was very fortunate at the unit I worked, one of the psychiatrists specialized in um, children mental health and youth mental health. And so we did a lot of consults on the pediatric floor, as well as there was a few beds available for youth in particular. And so we looked at a lot of behavioral issues, um, stressors that the children were going through, uh, school, bullying was a huge one, um, just getting to the root cause of what was causing the behaviors. A lot of the kids were acting out, and a lot of times it was the parents that were at the receiving end of that acting out because with human behavior, you're going to hurt the one you love the most first because somehow, intuitively, you know they will take it. And so it was doing a lot of family counseling around that area. And medication did play a role in those acute care experiences. Um, the medications that were used, they helped um, decrease or control the symptoms so that we could start doing the health teaching so that they could learn some resiliency and some coping skills and what their lifestyle looked like. That's a very good point that you make there because not everyone necessarily needs medication to get through a difficult time or a stressing time, but some people do need uh, medication to get through it. Uh, and my, I myself at first, you know, was hoping I didn't have to, but uh, once I had a diagnosis, I quickly realized that medication was going to be part of my life for the rest of my life, which is difficult to uh, deal with, but... Um, yeah. yeah. So when somebody tells you that this medication is going to be a part of your life, it's you have to go through the five stages of grief. You do because it's a change that you're not in control of. And that in itself is a form of a trauma. It's a personal stressor that um, can cause emotional shock. And sometimes that can lead to more worries than not when you think about, oh my goodness, how am I going to deal with this? Um, And it's about breaking down those steps day by day. It's like, okay, 
today, this medication is helping you. And this is what the benefits that you are receiving from it. And it's learning that it is a lifestyle of self-care. And so it's actually working to optimize your mental and emotional health, just as optimizing your physical health by exercising every day, or maybe taking a thyroid medication every day. It's looking at it as a lifestyle change that's going to enhance your quality of life. In other situations, um, especially when there's adjustment disorder or anxiety or a depressive episode, the person might not need to take the medication for the rest of their life, but there is a place for it at the time to decrease those severe severity of symptoms, especially if it's been going on a long time and there you haven't been able to manage it. And then with an understanding of how your body is hardwired, if there's any deficiencies in your electrolytes or your neurotransmitters or your hormones, once those are balanced by lifestyle changes, there's a lot of research coming out about serotonin in our guts and what we're putting in our bodies to fuel our energy. Um, sometimes people can get off of those medications done with guidance and follow-up with a team of support. That includes a naturopathic doctor, a nutritionist, a massage therapist, a physical um, trainer, whatever the person needs. There's so many modalities out there that you can really take advantage of. And I realized something when I was admitted to the hospital and I kind of, I'm not sure, like I am I'm more of a patient than than ever a nurse. But what I've noticed, right. I've gone in this very severe case where right. uh, uh, being bipolar type one, mm-hmm. manic episodes. And what I did notice, and I kind of related to being in a car accident where, you know, if you're in severe injuries, they kind of put you uh, in, in a, a pr- a coma right. for a period of time right. and kind of take you out here and there and see if you're doing all right. So when I exactly. first got admitted, I felt that way. I felt they yeah. would drug me mm-hmm. to a point where I was, you know, I wouldn't say not um, coherent, but right. just not Sedated. suffering. Absolutely. And then here and there, they would kind of bring you out and kind of check on you and see, mm-hmm. hey, is this person, you know, where are they at? And mm-hmm. that's kind of how they gradually got you medicated. Yeah. I don't know if that's a common practice. It is. Or... And what's happening there, Carl, what you described is when somebody comes into an acute mental health unit and they've been in a state where it's an unstable state or they're unable to function to the point that they're thinking is delusional or they haven't slept for days or their symptoms are so severe they can actually cause harm to themselves or someone else. Because when you are in such a stressed state, that's when your mind can really play tricks on you and start those negative self-talks or um, self-talk or negative talk towards somebody else, that delusional thinking. And so what we do when you look at the benefits of sleep, our body restores our bodily functions, our neurotransmitters, our electrolytes, our heart rate, our blood pressure. Everything has the best chance of getting back to balance in a state of sleep. And you have to go through the six stages of sleep, the REM cycle, to get into that deep sleep so that can happen. And it actually allows, we hold pain in our muscles. And by getting ourselves in a sleep state and relaxing our bodies, our muscles can let go of some of that tension, some of that buildup of toxicity. And our body has a way of deciphering it out. So more often than not, when somebody comes in, they will be sedated and 
It all depends on the individual and the psychiatrist's um, workup, how long. Sometimes it's a couple of days, sometimes it's a week, and then they start titrating the medications down. Because what happens when medications are in your system, you can't just quit them cold turkey. We have receptors in our brain that when we put medications into our systems and there's man-made chemicals that are messing with our brain natural receptors, the body gets used to functioning with them. And when you take them away cold turkey and that therapeutic level drops, our body doesn't know how to function. So you go into severe withdrawal. And so there's nausea, there's hallucinations, there's um, headaches, um, shakiness, restlessness. And sometimes the behaviors can be worse than before you came in. And I guess another hard question I yeah. want to ask you is, because um, I've dealt with this myself, and I'm sure there's people out there currently dealing with it, but is suicide. How, yeah. What was your experience in that field during that time with people who yeah. were in that state, which is a very difficult state to deal with? Yeah. And thank you for asking that question, Carl. Um So in my 10 years, I worked both in mental health and addictions. And when you look at the research on addiction, over 90% of individuals who start self-medicating is because there's been some form of abuse or neglect in their childhood, or they've had a chemical imbalance and they've never felt safe or belonged. They always felt alone. So... When you look at the long-term impact of self-medicating, it does a number on your feel-good neurotransmitters, your dopamine, your serotonin, your oxytocin, and it can cause um, periods of lows, like severe depression to the point where um, there doesn't seem to be any other way out as than to take your own life. And what I've learned through the, my mental health training is that when a person gets to that point that they see no other way out, that is they are living in severe emotional pain and they truly feel they are a burden to anyone in their lives that loves them. So it's the mind plays terrible tricks on a person's way of thinking when it gets to that point. Um, having that understanding going in um, allows me to increase my empathy or my ability to sit in the uncomfortableness with that individual and allow them to talk. So again, when I said earlier, not everybody knows what the right thing to say. And I'll share a story. When I was in my second year nursing, we had to do what was called a process recording. So one of our instructors had to sit with us as we had a conversation with an individual about a difficulty they were having. And it just happened that the individual that I was interviewing, he was having suicidal thoughts. And As a second-year nursing student, I was all of 19, I completely ignored them and got on to the next question because of my own uncomfortableness. And I did so bad in the evaluation that I had to redo it. And I realized that we it's very uncomfortable to talk to individuals, and individuals may find it uncomfortable to talk to another person about these deep-rooted negative self-talks. And so my mental health training gave me that ability to sit in that uncomfortableness, to ask the person, are you having thoughts of hurting yourself? 
Have you had these thoughts before? How often are these thoughts coming? What has been the last few days like in your day-to-day life? What's changed? Um, do you have the means of taking your own life? That's a big one. So there was, there was a lot of very specific, detailed questions I got used to asking individuals. And also watching their body language, their eye contact, um, how comfortable they were talking. And it just gave me an indication as, okay, is this something that the person's going to act on or is this a cry for help? And it's, you know, I would love to say that every person that does a suicide assessment gets it right. But we don't because we go by what the person says and how they're presenting. And one thing I've learned about um, mental health assessments is the person can change uh, their mood, their thoughts within one or two minutes. So you do the best that you can and you provide support and guidance. And one thing as well is respecting their personal space. Like I never got, I never stood too close or I never stood over a person talking to them. And I made sure that the environment was safe, that they, if they chose to, they could talk more about what was happening and very frequently going back and checking on the person. Um, I found when I worked addictions, there's this window of opportunity And this happens with someone who is experiencing any sort of mood, mood imbalance is you have this window of opportunity. And if that window closes, you don't know when it's going to open again, but it has to come from the person themselves, that initiative. What you can do as the helper is to be there for them, to be present. Doesn't mean always saying the right thing. It doesn't mean fixing the problem. It means being them for them being there for them and knowing that they are not alone. And just to add on to that, when I had nursing students in mental health, one of the most common questions when we started our clinical rotation is what if I say the wrong thing? And my answer was always, you cannot say the wrong thing when you genuinely care for the well-being of a person. As human beings, we don't articulate our emotions at the best of times, but our body language and how we present ourselves tells always tells the truth. Now, my last question before yeah. we end the podcast yeah, yeah. is um, I, it was very interesting to me to think about it where, you know, what were your, like, your initial thoughts about mental health, mm-hmm. you know, either being a teenager, going to nursing school and then right. finally doing that as a, as a nurse, like what right. your, is your ment- has your mentality changed? Absolutely. So again, when I first started nursing, I was all about, um, you know, fix the problem. Um, they came in with a surgery. They went or they came in, they needed surgery. They went in for surgery. We did the dressings. We saw the wound heal. They went home. And I saw mental illness is the same way. Um, if someone was not functioning In their jobs or their relationship, they came to the hospital, they got treated by the doctor, they got put on medication, they got fixed, and they went home. Thank goodness. I am so grateful. I have grown and my mindset has changed. I see 
mental health the way I see physical health in that it's a daily self-care practice and we need support and resources in our life to live at our optimal levels of mental, emotional, and physical health. So it's practicing, understanding if you're sad, go talk to someone about your sadness. It should be just as easy and seamless as going to a doctor or a naturopathic doctor if you have the flu or if your arthritis is flaring up. Um, Mental and emotional health is now the most important part of self-care measures in my mindset. (laughs) And I think it's very important to acknowledge these mental health nurses and thank you for your service in these times because I've been admitted to the hospital and these people um, genuinely care. Uh, You may not want to think that way when you're younger admitted. Uh, You know what I mean? It's not like a good place to be but Mm -hmm. these people generally care and and they have you know they're well trained and they are in a very difficult circumstance day to day and they deal with it and they help a lot of people what i've learned is the mental health team they get it and they taught me how to effectively communicate both listening to understand and articulating what needs to be said Well, I really thank you, Karen, for coming and joining and sharing your thoughts today. And uh, this is the the end of the podcast. And I hope you guys will come and join the next one in the next coming weeks. And uh, thank you for coming and joining us today. Thank you, Carl, for the opportunity to share. And thank you for listening. 